get over here close to this clock, so be sure that it's in my line of vision. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want us to look at the very last chapter of John, John chapter 21. Those four, first four books, of course, are called the Gospels, and, and they tell the story of Jesus. They give us His life. They give us His teaching. And uh, together, they, they form a rich, multicolored picture of, of the Christ we worship. In many ways, John is the most unique of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many parallels. They, they, uh, they present the Gospel in a harmonious way. And John says, now you have them. Let's think about this more deeply. And John becomes sort of the spiritual gospel that, that makes you reflect upon and take a, a deeper look at, at the first three gospels. And among the more unique parts of this unique gospel are the prologue and the epilogue. Now, the prologue is the first 14 verses of, of John. And when you read those first 14 verses, you have a wonderful picture of who Jesus is. In fact, uh, this would be a good little Bible study for you. Take John 1, 1 through 14, and Philippians 2, 5 through 11 that Dave read a moment ago, and the last half of Colossians chapter 1, and the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Read those four uninterruptedly, and you will have a magnificent portrait of our magnificent Christ. So John 1, 1 through 14 tells us who Jesus is. And then the epilogue, John 21, tells us how Jesus works. How Jesus works in the lives of people like you and me. And that's what we're going to examine this morning. And what we're going to find is the meddlesome ways of a merciful God. Now, here's a truth that can change your life. God the meddler. You see, God is, is forever meddling in our lives. God the meddler will not let you stay where you are. Not without a whole lot of hassle. And that's a good thing. Because you are, where you are is not really where you need to stay. Now, I'm not speaking geographically there. I mean, I'm not saying that whatever job you have now, you ought to change it and go find another one. Uh, whatever neighborhood you're living in, leave that neighborhood and move to another one. We've got folks doing both of those right now. I'm not saying whatever your hairstyle is, change it. I'd just like to have one. <clears throat> But I'm, I'm speaking at a more fundamental level about who you really are as a human being before you are a human doing. And at the core of your very nature and personality as God created you, God is always meddling in your life, does not want you to stay where you are because where you are is not where you really need to be. Now, you still may want to challenge that, but hang with me for a few moments this morning. It is still there. <clears throat> I 
because he is a merciful God. Now, there is an exception right off, or at least this is an apparent um, exception, and it's in this gospel, John 15, which is a very important passage if you want to understand the fruitful and fulfilling life you were created to live. There, Jesus says, remain in union with me. Keep on abiding in me. Stay closely connected to me. So the one place you ought to always be is closely connected to Christ. And if you stay closely connected to Christ, you will bear much fruit. And it will be fruit that will be forever. But here's the deal. If you stay closely connected with Christ, you will always be moving Always be changing, always be growing. So be grateful that God is a merciful God and that He is forever meddling in your life. But let me make one thing clear before we look at how God meddles in our lives. And that is that God is always seeking to change you, not so that He can love you. God seeks to change you because He loves you. And in that day, when we meet Him personally in heaven as Christ's followers, and we are fully changed, He will not love us one bit more there than when He began His meddlesome project in our lives. Now, you just think about that. It's a mind-blowing event and gives you permission to trust that God is merciful as He meddles in your life. It is a fundamental fact that God loves you with an unconditional, everlasting, Calvary kind of love, and because He does, He's going to be forever meddling in your life. Now, let's look at how he works in John chapter 21. You'll find here matched up from the words of Jesus three questions and three commands. And and in these pairs of questions and commands, we see ways that God meddles in our lives. So, first of all, let's look at verses, the opening verses of chapter 21. Afterward, well, we don't have time to talk about all the forward that led to afterward. Uh, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias. And it it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that'd be John and James, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to fish, says one of them. Guess which one it was that blurts something out first. Well, that would be Simon. That's pretty much true to his personality. I'm going fishing, he told them. And they said, well, we'll all go with you. It's amazing how and there are certain people who are inspirational leaders and they can stir up a whole lot of trouble just by uh, marching out in some direction. And uh, so they went out and they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. These are commercial fishermen and they fish all night and don't catch a thing. And early in the morning, Jesus stood by the shore, but the disciples did not realized that it was him. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? There's the question, the first question that a meddlesome God asked. No, they answered. Well, he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John modestly calls himself in his gospel, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as uh, John had that insight, 
Peter goes into action. He wraps his outer garment around him and and he jumps into the water while the other disciples follow in a more conventional means of transportation in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals and fish were on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. And Simon climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore, 153 large fish. John could remember the exact count to this very day of the writing. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask who it was. They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was how now the third time Jesus, having risen from the dead, appeared to the disciples. And here's the first way that Jesus is, is perennially meddling in our lives. He asked the question, do you have any fish? Now, we don't have this on video and we don't have the, the audio to this. And I've always wondered the, the tone of voice Jesus used here. It could have been sarcastic. I mean, he is God after all. He knows all things. He knows that he knows that they fished all night and didn't catch a frazzling one fish and were worn out and disgusted and I'm sure dispirited and discouraged and and you could almost flag Jesus 15 yards for piling on here. They know they didn't catch anything, but he just has to rub it in. He says, "Do you have any fish?" However, we know a lot about Jesus, and remember, he is a merciful God. And so there must be something compassionate in this question. And perhaps that's true in two different ways. First of all, the self-directed life is always a fruitless life. It, it leads to futility, to fruitlessness, ultimately to emptiness and disappointment. And usually when we're in the middle of it, we, we don't notice any of that. And somebody lovingly needs to call our attention to that reality and that usually happens in the midst of failure. Usually we're not very teachable when we're in charge of our lives and we think everything's going well. But when it isn't, when we fished all night and haven't caught a thing and we're bone tired, the Spirit of God can draw up close to us and remind us the reality and now we're ready to grow. The second neat thing here about Jesus' compassionate actions to me, is that the Son of God shows up when we've fished all night and we haven't caught a thing. God has this habit of showing up when we're in despair. And I think one of the most hopeful pictures in the New Testament is this one. The Son of God cooking breakfast for a bunch of miserable failures. You ever been there? Can you... Can you can you visualize yourself in that kind of picture? Jesus draws near to us and, and, and He calls out to us and He provides for us at the point of our need. And, and notice that key word there. He calls them friends. You see, that makes all the difference in the world. And Jesus has that habit. You know, if you, you flipped back to chapter 20 of John, it's, it's another wonderful scene. And, and, and in, in that scene... The disciples have all failed Jesus and they're terribly demoralized. And 
He's been crucified. And then comes the news that they can't hardly comprehend that he's risen from the dead. And they've gathered in the upper room. You ever notice out of habit you'll gather in a place where you've had past significant experiences, but they've locked the doors because they're afraid of those who, who crucified Jesus. And Jesus just walks right through that, that locked door and He addresses them. And what is the very first thing He says to them? What would you have said? If your children had, had heard all of your wonderful teaching all your life and then they go in out and do the exact opposite and fall flat on their faces and now they're huddled in their rooms and you walk into there, what's the first word you would say to them? You knuckleheads. I told you so. I am so disappointed in you. What did Jesus say? The very first word, if you look back to John 20, He walks through that locked door, appears before His demoralized disciples who have not had their finest hour. They have denied Him and run for the hills. And Jesus says, Shalom. The very first word. Sets the tone for everything. Peace. And here Jesus stands on the shore besides His demoralized disciples who once again have gotten off course a little bit and, and have re reverted to a former ways of behavior and have charged off without Him. And the first word He says is friends. He calls them friends. He set the stage for His loving, merciful meddling in their lives. And He shows up. And as much as we need those tangible gifts in life like our daily bread... Even more, we need a transforming friendship with Jesus. And remember in the Bible, an invitation to a meal was tantamount to an invitation to share one's life. So God is forever meddling in our lives to show up at our moments when we need Him the most and to invite us once again into a transforming friendship with Him. Let's go a little further. And let's pick up this event again. Just an amazing event. And Jesus clearly has an agenda here uh, in their lives. He, picking up with uh, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus fed them first. He said to Simon, Simon. Now, Jesus had been calling him Peter. You remember he gave him that name, which means essentially rocky, <laughs> you know, chip off the big rock. He's, he's giving him a reputation to live up to. Peter had always been rather impetuous and compulsive and all over the map. And Jesus says, I see rock-like qualities in you. But at this moment, he doesn't call him rocky. He says, Simon, son of John, do you, do you truly love me more than these? Now, we don't know what the these is there. It's, it's in the, the, the neuter gender, so it could be these things. You know, your fishing supplies uh, or a hundred other things. What do I love so much that it competes for my devotion to Christ? Great question. Or he could be saying more than these other disciples. After all, Simon just a, a few weeks before had boldly said, you know, all these other guys may, may, may forsake you. I never will. I'm sure that endeared him to the group at that point, you know. And now, embarrassingly, he's standing in front of those other guys and, and uh, he had cursed and denied his Lord. And, and he's standing beside this charcoal campfire and the unique aroma of, of coals is wafting up into his nostrils. And he's having a, 
a total sensory learning experience here because the last time Simon is recorded as standing beside a charcoal fire was in John chapter 18 where the same word is used in the original language. And, and it is over that charcoal fire as that pungent aroma fills the atmosphere that Simon denies Christ three times. And, and here three times Jesus is going to ask him in the same uh, setting, Do you love me more than these? And Simon says, you know I do. I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And he asks the second time, do you truly love me? And he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I, I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And, and Peter is hurt because Jesus now asks him the third time, do you love me? And finally, Simon says, you know all things and you do know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, you may know that in the original wording here, you know, this is where the English language is so inadequate. Uh, in the original language in the New Testament, there are multiple words for love. So you don't have to say, I love pizza, I love my wife, I love God, and have to use the same word. You know, there are, hopefully there are degrees there. Uh, maybe with some of us there, there might not be. But here Jesus is asking him, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me with no strings attached, ears laid back, flat out? Do you love me like the love of God, the, God, the love God has for you? And Simon replies, I phileo you. I, I love you like a dear friend. I, I love you like a, a brother. And the difference would not have been missed to that crowd. And and Jesus asked the second time, do you agape me? And again, Simon says, well, I love you like a brother. You know, it's hard not to be honest when you're directly in the presence of holy God. Somehow all the excuses melt away. Finally, Jesus comes down to Simon's level on the third question, and he says, do you love me like a brother? Simon says, you know, I do. In each case, Jesus says, feed my little lambs, feed, feed my sheep, and... What is going on here? Well, first of all, Jesus is restoring a broken man to a, a healed, whole relationship with Him. And first of all, and, and we all need to learn this, we've got to get honest with ourselves and with God, and we have to take ownership for our flaws, our foibles, our failures, in fact, our sins, and call them what they are, and accept ownership of that and responsibility for them. That's the first step toward healing and wholeness. And that's a tough one for, for us. And so Jesus is using that total sensory experience to lead Simon to take ownership for his brokenness. But then beyond that, he restores him. And he gives him back his meaning and purpose in life. He says, guys... And I, why he singled out Simon? Because of his unique position and personality, I guess. You know, you need me badly. The self-directed life is an empty life. But I want you to know that I love you and I restore you. I meddle in your life mercifully. And I give you back a sense of significant relationship and service with me. Feed my sheep. And that's the gift he gives to us. And every one of us has a flock to feed. Some of you who are leaders, those who look to you for leadership are part of your flock. 
Those of you who are small group facilitators or teachers, you have a flock whom you seek to see through the eyes of Christ and, and represent the love of Christ to them. Jesus says, find significance in your service there. And for all of us, we go to the marketplace relationships of our life, the normal traffic patterns of our everyday lives, our neighborhoods, our families, our workplace, school, those settings where we are with people on an everyday basis. And, and we have a flock there. They are the people whom God loves and for whom Christ died. And he says, you know, begin to view them that way and see a greater meaning to your everyday life. You represent me and there are, are sheep at least sheep I want to be part of my fold, whom you can shepherd. Pray to see them through my eyes. Seek to develop compassionate relationships with them. Tell them about me. Shepherd my sheep. And finally, God meddles in our lives as, as we, we close this interview. And, and Jesus goes on to tell some Simon, some Simon some things about his life he probably didn't want to hear. You ever wanted to know more about your future? Or have you finally gotten over that? God says, Simon, you know, there's going to come a day when you're going to be led around and you're going to die actually on an upside down cross as it plays out. Maybe we don't know, want to know every detail of our futures. We just want to entrust them to God. And uh, he says, you know, follow me. And then what does Simon do? He immediately looks over at John. Now, why did he look at John? It says, what about him? Now, here's this John. We, he's always sitting closest to Jesus, and he's leaning on Jesus' shoulder. And Simon's thinking, well, maybe I want to sit there some of the times, and I want to lean on Jesus' shoulder. But knowing what we know about activistic Simon, can you imagine him sitting still next to Jesus and leaning over his shoulder? He's too busy pacing around and giving speeches, you know, and sending off balloons all over the place. Or, you know, here's John, the one who says he's the disciple whom Jesus loves. Well, I want to be the disciple whom Jesus loves. Well, hey, maybe we ought to pause for a moment and think about that. I'm not sure John was being such a, you know, egotistical guy here. I think perhaps John, especially looking at the spiritual nature of his gospel, just never got over the amazement that he was a disciple whom Jesus loves. And maybe that's a good way to wake up every day and say, you know, this is amazing. I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. Just because he loves John doesn't mean he doesn't love me. But Simon gets into this a comparison game. Well, if I'm going to face some big struggles, how about him? And how did Jesus... Do you ever get into the comparison game? I wish I had somebody else's personality, gifts, income, house, ministry... You know, whatever. Why are we that way? And Jesus says, what is that to you? We have one life for which we are accountable, and it's our own. We are uniquely crafted of God. We have unique personalities, gifts, talents, abilities, relational opportunities, life experiences. You know, it's just exponential, the, the, the uniqueness, the unique possibilities of it all. And God has crafted you before you're ever born. He knew you and called you by name and, and set a path out for you. And that's the path to follow. And, and one of the best things we could learn from a medicine, medicine merciful God is, is to focus on Him 
and be faithful to the path He has set out before us and not worry about others. So aren't you grateful for the meddlesome ways of a merciful God that He calls out to you in, in the emptiness and despair that sometimes comes into our lives and stands on the seashore and reminds us that the self-directed life is a, an empty life and he, he says, come and have breakfast. Come and, and enjoy a continuous transforming love relationship with me. And he, he reminds us of our failures and helps us to confess them and then turn to Him and He restores us to a loving life of loving service and significant service with Him. And He says, follow me. And see again, that's a constant call of Christ, follow me. And that means life is constant motion. We're continually moving, continually changing, we're continually growing as we stay close to Christ. The old saying was that a disciple walked in the sandals of the rabbi. He walked so close to him that the rabbis, the dust off his shoes would would kick up on his shins. And and that always leads us into change and growth. So a good question this morning to close with in worship this day is that what am I clinging to that would hinder me from growing on and going on with Christ, that He may ever be changing me more into His image. What am I clinging to? My fears, my anxieties, my pride? What is it? That I might let go of it and lay at His feet. Lay it at His feet and go on and grow on with Him. I remember one of the images from Katrina that just devastated New Orleans were were these visual pictures of people who, who had lost everything, wandering around, clinging to homes that had been destroyed and were uninhabitable, but afraid to let go of them. And what is it that I cling to that I need to let go of? That a merciful God may meddle in my life, that I might find the life of fruitfulness and fulfillment in Him.